There is an uh, old story told about a new rabbi who is hired and he comes to the shul and he begins to see that every week a fight erupts during the services. And when it comes time in particular to recite the prayer called the Shema, half of the congregation stands and half of the congregation sits. The half who stands says, our tradition is to stand during the prayer. And the other half remains seated saying, our tradition is to remain seated. So the people who are standing yell at the people who are sitting, and the people who are sitting yell at the people who are standing. And it's driving the rabbi crazy. So the rabbi then arranges to meet with a 98-year-old member of the congregation who is a founding member of it. And he asks him, is it the tradition to stand for the Shema? And the old man says no. Then he says, is it the tradition to sit for the prayer? And the old man says no. And at this point, the rabbi can't control himself. And he says, you know what? I don't really care what the tradition is at this point. I just need for you to make a decision because this goes on every week. The people who are standing yell at the people who are sitting. The people who are sitting are yelling at the people who are standing. And the old man says, that's the tradition. <laughs> now, we used to know the people we argued with. In Israel, it was the socialists against the revisionists, the secular against the religious, the German Jews against the Russian and the Polish Jews. In between them were the recent immigrants, refugees from the Arab lands, places like Morocco and Tunisia, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. But it was clear that despite enormous differences of opinion on government policy and religious outlook, that everyone was sailing on the same boat. Because if that boat should go down, it takes everyone with it. But having just spent three or so weeks in Israel, something occurred to me. Now, I, like everyone else, was watching the news all the time. On the street in Israel, it's all you heard people talking about. With friends after hellos and questions about the children, it's all you would speak about. And as the drink would draw to a close, people would tell each other, see you at the protest. The hurricane making its way was a set of judicial changes advanced by its newly elected government. So what I want to do this morning is talk about two things, what and why. What the things the government is doing to send people to the streets and why it is a crisis. But make no mistake. We are in one of the most consequential moments of Jewish history, of which there are many sides to. I don't imagine this will be the last time I'm going to be speaking about it. Okay, you've seen the protest pictures. Nearly 200,000 people showed up in Tel Aviv alone last Saturday night. So how is it possible that changes to a judicial system could trigger this kind of response? Because when you hear words like dictatorship, autocracy, illiberal democracy, and democracy, it's important to understand that while each of these words have objective meanings, they're different between each and every country because no two democracies are ever the same. Now, it's important to realize that Israel's democratic story is a remarkable one, especially when you remember that from its birth moment, it has lived under emergency conditions surrounded by countries that have actively, actively supported and engaged in war against it. 
It lives under a spectrum that no other country in the world lives under. Not one other country lives under the spectrum of other countries vowing its destruction. And so think about that. Only Israel lives under the existential threat of other countries publicly committed to destroying itself. And yet, despite these enormous threats, also arrived millions of people who emigrated from non-democratic countries. Think of the Jews, a million who arrived from the former Soviet Union. Jews from North Africa, Middle Eastern Jews. None of them came from anything resembling a democratic society with robust branches of government and laws to ensure rights and freedoms. But when Israel was created, it was foreseen as Jewish, liberal, and democratic, which it has been for nearly 75 years, which is a testament to but one of the many miracles that we each see in it. This democracy was meant to take hold in three branches of government, a single parliamentary house called the Knesset, the bureaucracy and machinery of the government, and the Supreme Court. In actuality, Israel only has two branches because the ruling party in the Knesset actually controls the government. Keep in mind, Israel is a small country, about nine million citizens, and the government, and by extension, the political party that has control over it, has an enormous amount of power that affects the lives of the citizens every day. Now, it is true that in all countries, governments have tremendous power. But in most of those countries, there are things that put roadblocks in front of their power. Charters or constitutions that protect citizens' rights. And due to historical reasons, Israel was supposed to have a constitution, but they never ended up writing one because democratic countries are defined by the forces that limit government power. Now in Canada, we have a federal government. They have a treasury, they have an army, they have its own police force. If one day the federal government decided to do something extraordinarily harmful to Canadians who live in Ontario, they would have substantial roadblocks in their way to doing it. If the federal government the courts of the government couldn't provide relief, Ontario has its own government and its own leadership. Ontario has its own courts and its own treasury. The province has its own police force. And the major cities of this province also have their own police forces. In short, there are things, real things, that protect me and you from the federal government doing something very bad to us. And the reverse is also true where the federal government could come in and protect us if something nefarious would come from the provincial government. But in Israel, none of that exists. The only break on the government power to do anything, and by extension, the ruling power party, is the Supreme Court. There is no Senate. There are no provinces. It's the Supreme Court. If these proposed changes go through as planned, the essential question will be, what controls the power of the government? The proposed changes give the ruling party the right to appoint a majority of Supreme Court justices, allows the Knesset by a majority of one to override a court decision against them, 
and prohibits the court from interfering in a number of areas where the government operates. In short, these changes will permit the government to do what it wants, when it wants, how it wants, with little concern to a judiciary blocking it. It would represent the concentration of power in the hands of the government, which might be unstoppable. In response to this criticism, the government ministers tell Israelis that they can be trusted, that we can take their word, that individual rights and freedoms will be protected, that the democracy will in fact be strengthened by these changes. And yet at the same time, our report was leaked of the ruling coalition's plan to extend the term of the sitting Knesset from, from the traditional four years to now five years once the changes are put into place. It is these same ministers, by the way, of one whom one is under investigation for corruption, two are under indictment, two have been in prison, and the police minister has been convicted of terrorism. These same ministers of one said that an Arab village should be wiped away. So by taking to the streets, most Israelis are saying, we don't trust you. The numbers reveal the truth. Two, in three, two out of three Israelis are against the changes. A majority of the ruling party voters, of the people who voted for them, are against the changes. Relations with newly friendly Arab countries are now cold. The Israeli Prime Minister has not been welcomed to the White House as he has been in years past. Israelis who serve in the military are fearful that changes to weaken the independence of the court system will open them up to criminal charges at the International Court at The Hague. But above all else, their opposition is rooted in having been raised in an ethos to serve the people and not a person or a party. And since the majority of Israel's security apparatus is run with reservists, people began to announce that should these laws advance, they would not show up to their reserve duty. Now, as I began, in life it is important to know who you are arguing with. So to be sure, this is not a left-wing or a right-wing debate. Because post-Oslo, there is no real left wing in Israeli politics anymore. And despite the Netanyahu's government divisive screaming, this is not a debate about the privilege of Jews of European descent over Jews of Middle Eastern descent. Because the rate at which Jews from these different communities have married with each other is astonishingly high. And now two or three generations removed, they are not Tunisian Jews or Moroccan Jews or Polish Jews. They're Israelis, period. So what is this fight over and who is it with? Sunday night gave us the answer. As the protesters were streaming into the city centers, I was one of them along with my wife on last Saturday evening. Israel's defense minister took the extraordinary step of calling a press conference when the prime minister was out of the country. And he told the citizens of Israel that the nature of these reforms and the tearing of Israel's social cohesion are exposing the country to an existential crisis that our enemies are watching very closely. Sunday afternoon, the prime minister Netanyahu fired the defense minister 
and 600,000 Israelis went to the streets. By Monday afternoon, the reforms were halted, not canceled, but halted to give a chance for discussion to take place to build the kind of consensus that it requires. And I am not sure if that decision was sincere or a political ploy, but the fact is that, that they need to start talking with each other. And we all hope that this creates that moment. As the old joke goes, I'm not optimistic, but I am hopeful. But the firing of the defense minister, who does not serve the prime minister, but the state of Israel, told us all we need to know about who we are arguing with. Israel has always been a place of fierce debates, but all the political parties could never argue that either didn't actually want a state and have it replaced with something else. When Bibi Netanyahu cobbled the coalition government made of some of the most extreme elements of Israeli society, the ultra-Orthodox, religious messianic parties, far-right hooligans, he made a Faustian bargain. It was Faustian because these people don't see the state of Israel as the culmination of Jewish history and something inherently to be preserved. These people want it replaced by a society governed by religious law. And the Supreme Court is standing in their way. In firing the defense minister, Bibi Netanyahu made it clear that keeping his politics for the moment seemed to be more important than keeping the country safe. And with that, and with that, Israelis, no matter where their parents or grandparents came from, with no regard to whether they live in Tel Aviv or Afula, religious and non-religious, voters for the current government and opposers, they hit the street and they said, Dayenu, it's enough. Because you can disagree about policy, and you should, but you can never debate the reason, meaning that we can all rightly disagree about what the state may do, but we can never debate the reason why the state exists. With those, we have nothing to say. Months ago, at the start of this, a friend said to me, a friend, dear friend in Israel, that I'm afraid after these elections, this country just took a big step to looking something like Turkey or Hungary or Poland. And I understood exactly what he meant. Dysfunctional, corrupt, a country with something deeply broken to it. But I told him that I might agree with him except for one thing, and that is Israel is a country populated by Jews. And I told him the Jews won't stand for it. Sunday evening, I called him up and I said, you see? We didn't, and we won't. We did not come this far to lose it all again. Shabbat Shalom.